against Magor. Eager to prove his house's loyalty to the new king, Sir Giles made short work of the elderly Sir Harold, and was named Lord Commander of Jeheris's King's Guard soon after. Meanwhile, word of the prince's clemency spread throughout the realm. One by one, the remainder of King Magor's adherents dismissed their hosts, left their castles, and made the journey to King's Landing to swear fealty. Some did so reluctantly, fearing that Jeheris might prove to be as weak and feckless a king as his father. But as Magor had left no heirs of the body, there was no plausible rival around whom opposition might gather. Even the most fervent of Magor's supporters were won over once they met Jeheris, for he was all a prince should be, fair-spoken, open-handed, and as chivalrous as he was courageous. Grand Maester Benefer, newly returned from his self-imposed exile in Pentos, wrote that he was learned as a maester and pious as a septon. And whilst some of that may be discounted as flattery, there was truth to it as well. Even his mother, Queen Elisa, is reported to have called Jeheris the best of my three sons. It must not be thought that the reconciliation of the lords brought peace to Westeros overnight. King Magor's efforts to exterminate the poor fellows and the warriors' sons had set many pious men and women against him and against House Targaryen. Whilst he had collected the heads of hundreds of stars and swords, hundreds more remained at large, and tens of thousands of lesser lords, landed knights, and small folk sheltered them, fed them, and gave them aid and comfort wherever they could. Ragged Silas and Dennis the Lame commanded roving bands of poor fellows who came and went like wraiths, vanishing into the greenwood whenever threatened. North of the Golden Tooth, the Red Dog of the Hills, Sir Geoffrey Doggett, moved between the Westerlands and Riverlands at will. With the support and connivance of Lady Lucinda, the pious wife of the Lord of Riverrun. Sir Geoffrey, who had taken upon himself the mantle of the Grand Captain of the Warrior's Sons, had announced his intention to restore that once proud order to its former glory, and was recruiting knights to its banners. Yet the greatest threat was in the south, where Septon Moon and his followers camped beneath the walls of Old Town, defended by Lord Oakheart and Lord Rowan and their knights. A massive hulk of a man, Moon had been blessed with a thunderous voice and an imposing physical presence. Though his poor fellows had proclaimed him the true High Septon, this Septon, if indeed he was such, was no picture of piety. He boasted proudly that the Seven-Pointed Star was the only book he had ever read, and many questioned even that, for he had never been known to quote from that holy tome, and no man had ever seen him read nor write. Barefoot, bearded, and possessed of immense fervor, the poorest fellow could speak for hours, and often did, and what he spoke about was sin. I am a sinner, were the words with which Septon Moon began every sermon, and so he was, a creature of immense appetites, a glutton and a drunkard renowned for his lechery, Moon lay each night with a different woman, impregnating so many of them that his acolytes began to say that his seed could make a barren woman fertile. Such was the ignorance and folly of his followers that this tale became widely believed. Husbands began to offer him their wives, and mothers their daughters. Septon Moon never refused such offers, and after a time, some of the hedge knights and men-at-arms amongst his rabble began to paint images of the cock of the moon on their shields. 
and a brisk trade grew up in clubs, pendants, and staffs carved to resemble Moon's member. A touch with the head of these talismans was believed to bestow prosperity and good fortune. Every day, Septon Moon went forth to denounce the sins of House Targaryen and the lick spittle who permitted their abominations, whilst inside Old Town, the true father of the faithful had become a virtual prisoner in his own palace, unable to set forth outside the confines of the starry sept. Though Lord Hightower had closed his gates against Septon Moon and his followers, and refused to allow them entrance to his city, he showed no eagerness to take up arms against them despite repeated entreaties from his high holiness. When pressed for reasons, his lordship cited a distaste for shedding pious blood, but many claimed the real reason was his unwillingness to offer battle to Lords Oakheart and Rowan, who had granted Moon their protection. His reluctance earned him the name Lord Donald the Delaire from the Maesters of the Citadel. The long conflict between King Magor and the Faith had made it imperative that Jaehaerys be anointed king by the High Septon, Lord Rogar and the Queen Regent agreed. Before that could happen, however, Septon Moon and his ragged horde must needs be dealt with, so the prince could travel safely to Old Town. It had been hoped that the news of Magor's death would be sufficient to persuade Moon's followers to disperse, and some had done just that, but no more than a few hundred in a host that numbered close to five thousand. What can the death of one dragon matter when another rises up to take its place, Septon Moon declared to his throng. Westeros will not be clean again until all the Targaryens have been slain or driven back into the sea. Every day he preached anew, calling upon Lord Hightower to deliver Old Town to him, calling upon the High Lickspittal to leave the Starry Sept and face the wrath of the poor fellows he had betrayed, calling upon the small folk of the realm to rise up and every night he sinned anew. Across the realm in King's Landing, Jaehaerys and his counsellors considered how to rid the realm of this scourge. The boy king and his sisters, Reyna and Alisan, all had dragons, and some felt the best way to deal with Septon Moon was the way Aegon the Conqueror and his sisters had dealt with the two kings on the field of fire. Jaehaerys had no taste for such slaughter, however, and his mother, Queen Alyssa, flatly forbade it, reminding them of the fate of Rhaenys Targaryen and her dragon in dawn. Lord Rogar, the king's hand, said with some reluctance that he would lead his own host across the reach and disperse Moon's men by force of arms, though it would mean pitting his stormlanders and whatever other forces he might gather against Lords Rowan and Oakheart and their knights and men-at-arms, as well as the poor fellows, like as not, we will win, the protector said, but not without cost. Mayhaps the gods were listening, for even as the king and council argued in King's Landing, the problem was resolved in a most unexpected way. Dusk was falling outside of Old Town when Septon Moon retired to his tent for his evening meal, exhausted by a day of preaching. As always, he was guarded by his poor fellows, huge strapping axemen with unshorn beards, but when a comely young woman presented herself at the Septon's tent with a flagon of wine that she wished to give to his holiness in return for his help, they admitted her at once. They knew what sort of help the woman required, the sort that would put a babe inside her belly. A short time passed, during which the men outside the tent heard only occasional gusts of laughter from Septon Moon inside. 
But then, suddenly, there was a groan and a woman's shriek, followed by a bellow of rage. The tent flap was thrown open and the woman burst out half-naked and barefoot and dashed away, wide-eyed and terrified, before any of the poor fellows could think to stop her. Septon Moon himself followed a moment later, naked, roaring, and drenched in blood. He was holding his neck, and blood was leaking between his fingers and dripping down into his beard from where his throat had been slit open. It is said that Moon staggered through half the camp, lurching from campfire to campfire in pursuit of the doxy who had cut him. Finally, even his great strength failed him. He collapsed and died as his acolytes pressed around him, wailing their grief. Of his slayer, there was no sign. She had vanished into the night, never to be seen again. Angry, poor fellows tore the camp apart for a day and a night in search of her, knocking over tents, seizing dozens of women, and beating any man who tried to stand in their way. But the hunt came up empty. Septon Moon's own guards could not even agree on what his killer had looked like. The guards did recall that the woman had brought a flagon of wine with her as a gift for the Septon. Half the wine still remained in the flagon when the tent was searched, and four of the poor fellows shared it as the sun was coming up, after carrying the corpse of their prophet back to his own bed. All four were dead before noon. The wine had been laced with poison. In the aftermath of Moon's death, the ragged host that he had led to Old Town began to disintegrate. Some of his followers had already slipped away when word of King Magor's death and Prince Jaehaerys's ascension reached them. Now that trickle became a flood. Before the Septon's corpse had even begun to stink, a dozen rivals had come forward to claim his mantle, and fights began to break out amongst their respective followers. It might have been thought that Moon's men would turn to the two lords amongst them for leadership, but nothing could be further from the truth. The poor fellows, especially, were no respecters of nobility, and the reluctance of Lords Rowan and Oakhart to commit their knights and men-at-arms to an assault on the walls of Old Town had made them suspicious of the two lords. The possession of Moon's mortal remains became itself a bone of contention between two of his would-be successors, the poor fellow known as Rob the Starveling, and a certain Lorcus, called Lorcus the Learned, who boasted of having committed all of the seven-pointed star to memory. Lorcus claimed to have had a vision that Moon would yet deliver Old Town into the hands of his followers even after death. After seizing the Septon's body from Rob the Starveling, this learned fool strapped it atop a Destria, naked, bloody, and rotting, to storm the gates of Old Town. Fewer than a hundred men joined in the attack, however, and most of them died beneath a rain of arrows, spears, and stones before they got within a hundred yards of the city walls. Those who did reach the walls were drenched in boiling oil or set afire with burning pitch, Lorcus the learned himself amongst them. When all his men were dead or dying, a dozen of Lord Hightower's boldest knights rode forth from a sally port, seized Septon Moon's body, and removed his head. Tanned and stuffed, it would later be presented to the High Septon in the Starry Sept as a gift. The abortive attack proved to be the last gasp of Septon Moon's crusade. Lord Rowan decamped within the hour with all his knights and men-at-arms. Lord Oakhart followed the next day. The remainder of the host, hedge knights and poor fellows and camp followers and tradesmen, streamed away in all directions, looting and pillaging every farm, village, and holdfast in their path as they went. 
Fewer than four hundred remained of the five thousand that Septon Moon had brought to Old Town when Lord Donald the Delayer at last bestirred himself and rode forth in force to slaughter the stragglers. Moon's murder removed the last major obstacle to the accession of Jeheris Targaryen to the Iron Throne, but from that day to this, debate has raged as to who was responsible for his death. No one truly believed that the woman who attempted to poison the sinful Septon and ended by cutting his throat was acting on her own. Plainly, she was but a cat's paw. But whose? Did the boy king himself send her forth, or was she mayhaps an agent of his hand, Rogar Baratheon, or his mother, the Queen Regent? Some came to believe that the woman was one of the faceless men, the infamous guild of sorcerer assassins from Bravos. In support of this claim, they cited her sudden disappearance, the way she seemed to melt into the night after the murder, and the fact that Septon Moon's guards could not agree on what she looked like. Wiser men and those more familiar with the ways of the faceless men give this theory little credence. The very clumsiness of Moon's murder speaks against it being their work, for the faceless men take great care to make their killings appear as natural deaths. It is a point of pride with them the very cornerstone of their art. Slitting a man's throat and leaving him to stagger forth into the night, screaming of murder is beneath them. Most scholars today believe that the killer was no more than a camp follower, acting at the behest of either Lord Rowan or Lord Oakheart, or mayhaps the both of them. Though neither dared desert Moon whilst he lived, the alacrity with which the two lords abandoned his cause after his death suggests that their grievance had been with Magor, not with House Targaryen. And indeed, both men would soon return to Old Town, penitent and obedient, to bend the knee before Prince Jeheris at his coronation. With the way to Old Town clear and safe once more, that coronation took place in the Starry Sept in the waning days of the forty-eighth year after the conquest. The High Septon, the High Lickspittle that Septon Moon had hoped to displace, anointed the young king himself and placed his father Aeneas's crown upon his head. Seven days of feasting followed, during which hundreds of lords, great and small, came to bend their knees and swear their swords to Jeheris. Amongst those in attendance were his sisters, Reyna and Alisan, his young nieces, Aria and Rayla, his mother, the Queen Regent Alyssa, the King's Hand, Rogar Baratheon, Sir Giles Morrigan, the Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Grand Maester Benefer, the assembled archmaesters of the citadel. And one man no one could have expected to see. Sir Geoffrey Doggett, the Red Dog of the Hills, self-proclaimed Grand Captain of the outlawed Warrior's Sons. Doggett had arrived in the company of Lord and Lady Tully of Riverrun, not in chains, as most might have expected, but with a safe conduct bearing the King's own seal. Grand Maester Benefer wrote afterward that the meeting between the boy king and the outlaw knight set the table for all of Jeheris's reign to follow. When Sir Geoffrey and Lady Lucinda urged him to undo his uncle Magor's decrees and reinstate the swords and stars, Jeheris refused firmly. The faith has no need of swords, he declared. They have my protection, the protection of the Iron Throne. He did, however, rescind the bounties that Magor had promised for the heads of warriors' sons and poor fellows. I shall not wage war against my own people, he said, but neither shall I tolerate treason and rebellion. 
I rose against your uncle just as you did, replied the Red Dog of the Hills, defiant. You did, Jeheris allowed, and you fought bravely. No man can deny. The warrior's sons are no more, and your vows to them are at an end, but your service need not be. I have a place for you. And with these words, the young king shocked the court by offering Sir Joffrey a place by his side as a knight of the king's guard. A hush fell then, Grand Maester Benefer tells us, and when the red dog drew his long sword, there were some who feared he might be about to attack the king with it. But instead the knight went to one knee, bowed his head, and laid his blade at Jeheris's feet. It is said that there were tears upon his cheek. Nine days after the coronation, the young king departed Old Town for King's Landing. Most of his court travelled with him in what became a grand pageant across the reach. But his sister Raina stayed with them only as far as Highgarden, where she mounted her dragon Dreamfire to return to Fair Isle and Lord Farman's castle above the sea, taking her leave not only of the king, but of her daughters. Rayla, a novice sworn to the faith, had remained at the starry sept whilst her twin, Aria, continued on with the king to the Red Keep, where she was to serve as a cup-bearer and companion to the princess, Alisan. Yet a curious thing befell Queen Rayna's girls after the king's coronation, it was observed. The twins had ever been mirror images of each other in appearance, but not in temperament, whereas Rayla was said to be a bold and willful child and a terror to the scepters who had been given charge of her, Aria had been known as a shy, timid creature, much given to tears and fears. She is frightened of horses, dogs, boys with loud voices, men with beards and dancing, and she is terrified of dragons, Grand Maester Benefer wrote when Aria first came to court. That was before Magor's fall and Jeheris's coronation, however. Afterward, the girl who remained at Old Town devoted herself to prayer and study, and never again required chastisement, whereas the girl who returned to King's Landing proved to be lively, quick-witted, and adventurous, and was soon spending half her days in the kennels, the stables, and the dragon yards. Though nothing was ever proved, it was widely believed that someone, Queen Raina herself mayhaps, or her mother, Queen Alyssa, had used the occasion of the King's coronation to switch the twins. If so, no one was inclined to question the deception, for until such time as Jeheris sired an heir of the body, Princess Aria, or the girl who now bore that name, was the heir to the Iron Throne. All reports agree that the king's return from Old Town to King's Landing was a triumph. So Joffrey rode by his side, and all along the route they were hailed by cheering throngs. Here and there, poor fellows appeared, gaunt, unwashed fellows with long beards and great axes, to beg for the same clemency that had been granted the Red Dog. This Jeheris granted them on the condition that they agreed to journey north and join the Night's Watch at the Wall. Hundreds swore to do so, amongst them no less a personage than Rob the Starveling. Within a moon's turn of being crowned, Grand Maester Benefer wrote, King Jeheris had reconciled the Iron Throne to the Faith, and put an end to the bloodshed that had troubled the reigns of his uncle and father. The Year of the Three Brides, 49 A.C. The forty-ninth year after Aegon's conquest gave the people of Westeros a welcome respite from the chaos and conflict that had gone before.
It would be a year of peace, plenty, and marriage, remembered in the annals of the Seven Kingdoms as the Year of the Three Brides. The new year was but a fortnight old when news of the first of the three weddings came out of the west, from Fair Isle by the Sunset Sea. There, in a small, swift ceremony under the sky, Arena Targaryen wed Andro Farman, the second son of the Lord of Fair Isle. It was the groom's first marriage, the bride's third. Though twice widowed, Raina was but twenty-six. Her new husband, just ten and seven, was notably younger, a comely and amiable youth said to be utterly besotted with his new wife. Their wedding was presided over by the groom's father, Mark Farman, Lord of Fair Isle, and conducted by his own septon. Lyman Lannister, Lord of Casterly Rock, and his wife Jocasta were the only great lords in attendance. Two of Rayner's former favourites, Samantha Stokeworth and Alain Royce, made their way to Fair Isle in some haste to stand with the widowed queen, together with the groom's high-spirited sister, the Lady Alyssa. The remainder of the guests were bannermen and household knights, sworn to either House Farman or House Lannister. King and court remained entirely ignorant of the marriage, until a raven from the rock brought word days after the wedding feast and the bedding that sealed the match. Chroniclers in King's Landing report that Queen Alyssa was deeply offended by her exclusion from her daughter's wedding, and that relations between mother and child were never as warm afterward, whereas Lord Rogar Baratheon was furious that Rayna had dared remarry without the crown's leave, the crown in this instance being himself, as the young king's hand. Had leave been asked, however, there was no certainty it would have been granted, for Andro Farman, the second son of a minor lord, was thought by many to be far from worthy of the hand of a woman who had been twice a queen and remained the mother of the king's heir. As it happened, the youngest of Lord Rogar's brothers remained unwed as of 49 AC, and his lordship had two nephews by another brother, who were also of a suitable age and lineage to be considered potential mates for a Targaryen widow facts which might well explain both the hand's anger and the secrecy with which Queen Rayna wed. King Jeheris himself and his sister Alisan rejoiced at the tidings, dispatching gifts and congratulations to Fair Isle, and commanding that the Red Keep's bells be rung in celebration. Whilst Rayna Targaryen was celebrating her marriage on Fair Isle, back in King's Landing, King Jeheris and his mother, the Queen Regent, were busy selecting the councillors who would help them rule the realm for the next two years. Conciliation remained their guiding principle, for the divisions that had so recently torn Westeros apart were far from healed. Rewarding his own loyalists and excluding Magor's men and the faithful from power would only exacerbate the wounds and give rise to new grievances, the young king reasoned. His mother agreed. Accordingly, Jeheris reached out to the Lord of Claw Isle, Edwell Keltiger, who had been Hand of the King under Magor, and recalled him to King's Landing to serve as Lord Treasurer and Master of Coin. For Lord Admiral and Master of Ships, the young king turned to his uncle, Damon Valerian, Lord of the Tides, Queen Alyssa's brother, and one of the first great lords to abandon Magor the Cruel. Prentice Tully, Lord of Riverrun, was summoned to court to serve as Master of Laws, with him came his redoubtable wife, the Lady Lucinda, far famed for her piety. Command of the City Watch, the largest armed force in King's Landing, the king entrusted to Carl Corbre, Lord of Hearts Home, who had fought beside Aegon the Uncrowned beneath the God's eye. 
Above them all stood Rogar Baratheon, Lord of Storm's End and Hand of the King. It would be a mistake to underestimate the influence of Jaehaerys Targaryen himself during the years of his regency, for despite his youth, the boy king had a seat at most every council, but not all, as will be told shortly, and was never shy about letting his voice be heard. In the end, however, the final authority throughout this period rested with his mother, the queen regent, and the hand, a redoubtable man in his own right. Blue-eyed and black-bearded and muscled like a bull, Lord Rogar was the eldest of five brothers, all grandsons of Oris Onehand, the first Baratheon lord of Storm's End. Oris had been a bastard brother to Aegon the Conqueror and his most trusted commander. After slaying Argilac the Arrogant, last of the Durandon, he had taken Argilac's daughter to wife. Lord Rogar could thus claim that both the blood of the dragon and that of the storm kings of old flowed in his veins. No swordsman, his lordship preferred to wield a double-bladed axe in battle. An axe, he oft said, large and heavy enough to cleave through a dragon's skull. Those were dangerous words during the reign of Magor the Cruel. But if Rogar Baratheon feared Magor's wrath, he hid it well. Men who knew him were unsurprised when he gave shelter to Queen Alyssa and her children after their flight from King's Landing, and when he was the first to proclaim Prince Jaehaerys king. His own brother, Boris, was heard to say that Rogar dreamed of facing King Magor in single combat and cutting him down with his axe. That dream fate denied him. Instead of a king-slayer, Lord Rogar became a king-maker, delivering to Prince Jaehaerys the Iron Throne. Few questioned his right to take his place at the side of the young king as hand. Some went so far as to whisper that it would be Rogar Baratheon who ruled the realm henceforth, for Jaehaerys was a boy and the son of a weak father, whilst his mother was only a woman. And when it was announced that Lord Rogar and Queen Alyssa were to marry, the whispers grew louder. For what is a queen's lord husband, if not a king? Lord Rogar had been married once before, but his wife had died young, taken off by a fever less than a year after their wedding. The Queen Regent Alyssa was forty-two years old and thought to be past her child-bearing years, the Lord of Storm's End ten years her junior. Writing some years later, Septon Bath tells us that Jaehaerys was opposed to the marriage. The young king felt that his hand was overreaching himself motivated more by a desire for power and position than a true affection for his mother. He was angry that neither his mother nor her suitor had sought his leave as well, Bath said. But as he had raised no objections to his sister's marriage, the king did not believe he had the right to prevent his mother's. Jaehaerys thus held his tongue and gave no hint of his misgivings, save to a few close confidants. The hand was admired for his courage, respected for his strength, feared for his military prowess and skill at arms. The Queen Regent was loved. So beautiful, so brave, so tragic, women said of her. Even such lords as might have balked at a woman ruling over them were willing to accept her as their liege, secure in the knowledge that she had Rogar Baratheon standing beside her, and the young king less than a year away from his sixteenth name day. She had been a beautiful child, all men agreed, the daughter of the mighty Athan Valerian, Lord of the Tides, and his lady wife Alara of House Massey. 
Her line was ancient, proud, and rich. Her mother esteemed as a great beauty, her grandsire amongst the oldest and closest friends of Aegon the Dragon and his queens. The gods blessed Elisa herself with the deep purple eyes and shining silvery hair of old Valyria, and gave her charm and wit and kindness as well, and as she grew, suitors flocked around her from every corner of the realm. There was never any true question of whom she would wed, however. For a girl such as her, only royalty would suffice, and in the year 22 AC, she married Prince Aenys Targaryen, the unquestioned heir to the Iron Throne. Theirs was a happy and fruitful marriage. Prince Aenys was a gentle and attentive husband, warm-natured, generous, and never unfaithful. Elisa bore him five strong, healthy children, two daughters and three sons. A sixth child, another daughter, died in her cradle shortly after birth, and when his sire died in 37 AC, the crowd passed to Aenys, and Elisa became his queen. In the years that followed, she saw her husband's reign crumble and turn to ash as enemies rose up all around him. In 42 AC, he died, a broken man and despised, only five and thirty years of age. The queen scarce had time to grieve for him, before his brother seized the throne that rightly belonged to her eldest son. She saw her son rise up against his uncle and die, together with his dragon. A short while later, her second son followed him to the funeral pyre, tortured to death by Tyana of the Tower. Together with her two youngest children, Alyssa was made a prisoner in all but name of the man who had brought about the death of her sons, and was made to bear witness when her eldest daughter was forced into marriage to that same monster. The Game of Thrones takes many a queer turn, however, and Magor himself had fallen in turn, in no small part thanks to the courage of the widowed Queen Alyssa and the boldness of Lord Rogar, who had befriended her and taken her in when no one else would. The gods had been good to them and granted them victory, and now the woman who had been Alyssa of House Valerian was to be given a second chance at happiness with a new husband. The wedding of the king's hand and the queen regent was to be as splendid as that of the widowed queen Rhaena had been modest. The high septon himself would perform the marriage rites on the seventh day of the seventh moon of the new year. The site would be the half-completed dragon pit, still open to the sky, whose rising tiers of stone benches would allow for tens of thousands to observe the nuptials. The celebrations would include a great tourney, seven days of feasts and frolics, and even a mock sea battle to be fought in the waters of Blackwater Bay. No wedding half so magnificent had been celebrated in Westeros in living memory, and lords great and small from throughout the Seven Kingdoms and beyond gathered to be part of it. Donald Hightower came up from Old Town with a hundred knights and seventy-seven of the most devout, escorting His High Holiness the High Septon, whilst Lyman Lannister brought three hundred knights from Casterly Rock. Brandon Stark, the ailing Lord of Winterfell, made the long journey down from the north with his sons Walton and Alaric, attended by a dozen fierce northern bannermen and thirty sworn brothers of the Night's Watch. Lords Arryn, Corbray, and Royce represented the Vale, Lords Selmy, Dondarrion, and Tarly, the Dornish Marches, even from beyond the borders of the realm the great and mighty came, the Prince of Dawn sent his sister, the Sea Lord of Bravos, a son. The Archon of Tyrosh crossed the narrow sea himself with his maiden daughter, as did no fewer than twenty-two magisters from the free city of Pentos. All 
brought handsome gifts to bestow on the Hand and Queen Regent. The most lavish came from those who had only lately been Magor's men, and from Rickard Rowan and Torgan Oakheart, who had marched with Septon Moon. The wedding guests came ostensibly to celebrate the union of Rogar Baratheon and the Dowager Queen, but they had other reasons for attendance, it should not be doubted. Many wished to treat with the Hand, who were seen by many as the true power in the realm. Others wished to take the measure of their new boy king. Nor did his grace deny them that opportunity. Sir Giles Morrigan, the king's champion and sworn shield, announced that Jeheris would be pleased to grant audience to any lord or landed knight who wished to meet with him, and six score accepted his invitation. Eschewing the great hall and the majesty of the Iron Throne, the young king entertained the lords in the intimacy of his solar, attended only by Sir Giles, a maester, and a few servants. There, it is said, he encouraged each man to speak freely and share his views on the problems of the realm and how they might best be overcome. He is not his father's son, Lord Royce told his maester afterward, grudging praise, mayhaps, but praise all the same. Lord Vance of Wayfarer's Rest was heard to say, he listens well, but says little. Ricard Rowan found Jeheris gentle and soft-spoken. Kyle Connington thought him witty and good-humoured. Morton Caron cautious and shrewd. He laughs often and freely, even at himself, John Mertens said approvingly. But Alec Hunter thought him stern, and Torgan Oakheart grim. Lord Malister pronounced him wise beyond his years, whilst Lord Darry said he promised to be the sort of king any lord should be proud to kneel to. The most profound praise came from Brandon Stark, Lord of Winterfell, who said, I see his grandsire in him. The king's hand attended none of these audiences, but it should not be thought that Lord Rogar was an inattentive host. The hours his lordship spent with his guests were devoted to other pursuits, however, he hunted with them, hawked with them, gambled with them, feasted with them, and drank the royal cellars dry. After the wedding, when the tourney began, Lord Rogar was present for every tilt and every melee, surrounded by a lively and oft-drunken coterie of great lords and famous knights. The most notorious of his lordship's entertainments occurred two days before the ceremony, however, Though no record of it exists in any court chronicle, tales told by servants and repeated for many years thereafter amongst the small folk claim that Lord Rogar's brothers had brought seven virgins across the narrow sea from the finest pleasure houses of Lys. Queen Elissa had surrendered her own maidenhood many years before to Aenys Targaryen, so there could be no question of Lord Rogar deflowering her on their wedding night. The Lysene maidens were meant to make up for that lack. If the whispers heard about court afterward were true, his lordship supposedly plucked the flowers of four of the girls before exhaustion and drink did him in. His brothers, nephews, and friends did for the other three, along with two score older beauties who had sailed with them from Lys. Whilst the hand roistered and King Jeheris sat in audience with the lords of the realm, his sister, Princess Alessane, entertained the high-born women who had come with them to King's Landing. The king's elder sister, Reyna, had chosen not to attend the nuptials, preferring to remain on Fair Isle with her own new husband and her court, and the queen regent, Alyssa, was busy with preparations for the wedding, so the task of playing hostess to the wives, daughters, and sisters of the great and mighty fell to Alessane. 
Though she had only recently turned thirteen, the young princess rose to the challenge brilliantly, all agreed. For seven days and seven nights she broke her fast with one group of high-born ladies, dined with a second, supped with a third. She showed them the wonders of the Red Keep, sailed with them on Blackwater Bay, and rode with them about the city. Alessand Targaryen, the youngest child of King Aenys and Queen Alyssa, had been little known amongst the lords and ladies of the realm before then. Her childhood had been spent in the shadow of her brothers and her elder sister Raina, and when she was spoken of at all it was as the little maid and the other daughter. She was little, this was true. Slim and slight of frame, Alessand was oft described as pretty, but seldom as beautiful though she was born of a house renowned for beauty. Her eyes were blue rather than purple, her hair a mass of honey-coloured curls. No man ever questioned her wits. Later it would be said of her that she learned to read before she was weaned, and the court fool would make japes about little Alessane dribbling mother's milk on Valyrian scrolls as she tried to read whilst suckling at her wet nurse's teat. Had she been a boy, she would surely have been sent to the citadel to forge a maester's chain, Septon Bath would say of her. For that wise man esteemed her even more than her husband, whom he served for so long. That was far in the future, however. In 49 AC, Alessane was but a girl of thirteen years, yet all the chronicles agree that she made a powerful impression on those who met her. When the day of the wedding finally arrived, more than forty thousand small folk ascended the hill of Rhaenys to the dragon pit to bear witness to the union of the queen regent and the hand. Some observers put the count even higher. Thousands more cheered Lord Rogar and Queen Elisa in the streets as their procession made its way across the city, attended by hundreds of knights on caparisoned palfreys and columns of scepters ringing bells. Never has there been such a glory in all the annals of Westeros, wrote Grand Maester Benefer. Lord Rogar was clad head to heel in cloth of gold beneath an antlered half-helm, whilst his bride wore a great cloak sparkling with gemstones, with a three-headed dragon of House Targaryen and the silver seahorse of the Valerians facing one another on a divided field. Yet for all the splendour of the bride and groom, it was the arrival of Elisa's children that set King's Landing to talking for years to come. King Jeheris and Princess Alisan were the last to appear, descending from a bright sky on their dragons Vermithor and Silverwing. The dragon pit still lacked the great dome that would be its crowning glory, it must be recalled, their great leathern wings stirring up clouds of sand as they came down side by side to the awe and terror of the gathered multitudes. The oft-told tale that the arrival of the dragons caused the aged High Septon to soil his robes is likely only a calumny. Of the ceremony itself, and the feast and bedding that followed in due course, we need say little. The Red Keep's cavernous throne room hosted the greatest of the lords and the most distinguished of the visitors from across the sea. Lesser lords, together with their knights and men-at-arms, celebrated in the yards and smaller halls of the castle, whilst the small folk of King's Landing made merry in a hundred inns, wine-sinks, pot-shops, and brothels. Notwithstanding his purported exertions two nights prior, it is reliably reported that Lord Rogar performed his husbandly duties with vigour, cheered on by his drunken brothers. Seven days of tourney, 
followed the wedding and kept the gathered lords and the people of the city enthralled. The tilts were as hard-fought and thrilling as had been seen in Westeros in many a year, all agreed, but it was the battles fought afoot with sword and spear and axe that truly excited the passions of the crowd on this occasion, and for good reason. It will be recalled that three of the seven knights who served as Magor the Cruel's king's guard were dead. The remaining four had been sent to the wall to take the black. In their places, King Jeheris had thus far named only Sir Giles Morrigan and Sir Geoffrey Doggett. It was the Queen Regent, Alyssa, who first put forward the idea that the remaining five vacancies be filled through test of arms. And what better occasion for it than the wedding, when knights from all over the realm would gather? Magor had old men, lickspittles, cravens, and brutes about him, she declared. I want the knights protecting my son to be the finest to be found anywhere in Westeros, true honest men whose loyalty and courage is unquestioned. Let them win their cloaks with deeds of arms, whilst all the realm looks on. King Jeheris was quick to second his mother's notion, but with a practical twist of his own. Sagely, the young king decreed that his would-be protectors should prove their prowess afoot, not in the joust. Men who would do harm to their king seldom attack on horseback with lance in hand, his grace declared. And so it was that the tilts that followed his mother's wedding yielded pride of place to the wild melees and bloody duels the maesters would dub the War for the White Cloaks. With hundreds of knights eager to compete for the honour of serving in the king's guard, the combats lasted seven full days. Several of the more colourful competitors became favourites of the small folk, who cheered them raucously each time they fought. One such was the drunken knight Sir Willem Stafford, a short, stout, big-bellied man who always appeared so intoxicated that it was a wonder he could stand, let alone fight. The commons named him the Kegger Ale, and sang Hail, Hail, Kegger Ale whenever he took the field. Another favourite of the commons was the bard of Fleabottom, Tom the Strummer, who mocked his foes with ribald songs before each bout. The slender mystery knight, known only as the Serpent in Scarlet, also had a great following. When finally defeated and unmasked, he proved to be a woman, John Quill Dark, a bastard daughter of the Lord of Duskendale. In the end, none of these would earn a white cloak. The knights who did, though less madcap, proved themselves second to none in valour, chivalry, and skill at arms. Only one was the scion of a lordly house, Sir Lawrence Roxton from the Reach. Two were sworn swords, Sir Victor the Valiant from the household of Lord Royce of Runestone, and Sir Willem the Wasp, who served Lord Smallwood of Acorn Hall. The youngest champion, Pate the Woodcock, fought with a spear instead of a sword, and some questioned whether he was a knight at all, but he proved so skilful with his chosen weapon that Sir Geoffrey Doggett settled the matter by dubbing the lad himself whilst hundreds cheered. The eldest champion was a grizzled hedge knight named Sam Good of Sour Hill, a scarred and battered man of three and sixty who claimed to have fought in a hundred battles. And never you mind on what side, that's for me and the gods to know. One-eyed, bald and almost toothless, the knight called Sour Sam looked as gaunt as a fence post, but in battle he displayed the quickness of a man half his age, and a vicious skill honed through long decades of battles, great and small. Jeheris the Conciliator 
would sit the Iron Throne for fifty-five years, and many a knight would wear a white cloak in his service during that long reign, more than any other monarch could boast. But it was rightly said that never did any Targaryen possess a king's guard who could equal the boy king's first seven. The war for the white cloaks marked the end of the festivities of what soon became known as the Golden Wedding. As the visitors took their leaves to wend their way home to their own lands and keeps, all agreed that it had been a magnificent event. The young king had won the admiration and affection of many lords, both great and small, and their sisters, wives, and daughters had only praise for the warmth shown them by Princess Alessandre. The small folk of King's Landing were pleased as well. Their boy king seemed to have every sign of being a just, merciful, and chivalrous ruler, and his hand, Lord Rogar, was as open-handed as he was bold in battle. Happiest of all were the city's innkeeps, taverners, brewers, merchants, cut purses, whores, and brothel keepers, all of whom had profited mightily from the coin the visitors brought to the city. Yet, though the golden wedding was the most lavish and far-famed of the nuptials of 49 A.C., the third of the marriages made in that fateful year would prove to be the most significant. With their own wedding now safely behind them, the Queen Regent and the King's Hand next turned their attention to finding a suitable match for King Jeheris, and to a lesser extent for his sister, Princess Alessandre. So long as the boy king remained unwed and without issue, the daughters of his sister Reyna would remain his heirs, but Aria and Rayla were still children, and it was felt by many manifestly unfit for the crown. Moreover, Lord Rogar and Queen Elisa both feared what might befall the realm should Reyna Targaryen return from the west to act as regent for a daughter. Although none dared speak of it, it was plain that discord had arisen between the two queens, for the daughter had neither attended her mother's wedding nor invited her to her own, and there were some who went further and whispered that Reyna was a sorceress who had used the dark arts to murder Magor upon the Iron Throne. Therefore it was incumbent upon King Jeheris to marry and beget a son as soon as possible. The question of who the young king might marry was less easily resolved. Lord Rogar, who was known to harbour thoughts of extending the power of the Iron Throne across the narrow sea to Essos, put forward the notion of forging an alliance with Tyrosh by wedding Jeheris to the Archon's daughter, a comely girl of fifteen years who had charmed all at the wedding with her wit, her flirtatious manner, and her blue-green hair. In this, however, his lordship found himself opposed by his own wife, Queen Alyssa. The small folk of Westeros would never accept a foreign girl with dyed tresses as their queen, she argued, no matter how delightful her accent. And the pious would oppose the girl bitterly, for it was known that the Tyroshi kept not the seven, but worshipped Red Relor, the pattern-maker, three-headed Trios, and other queer gods. Her own preference was to look to the houses who had risen in support of Aegon the Uncrowned in the battle beneath the god's eye. Let Jeheris wed Avance, a Corbre, a Westerling, or a Piper, she urged. Loyalty should be rewarded, and by making such a match the king would honour Aegon's memory and the valour of those who fought and died for him. It was Grand Maester Benefer who spoke loudest against such a course, pointing out that the sincerity of their commitment to peace and reconciliation might be doubted if they were seen to favour those who had fought for Aegon over those who had remained with Magor. A better choice, he felt, 
would be a daughter of one of the great houses that had taken little or no part in the battles between uncle and nephew, a Tyrell, a Hightower, an Aaron. With the king's hand, the queen regent and the grand maester so divided, other councillors felt emboldened to put forward candidates of their own. Prentice Tully, the royal justiciar, nominated a younger sister of his own wife, Lucinda, famed for her piety. Such a choice would surely please the faith. Damon Valerian, the Lord Admiral, suggested that Jeheris might marry the widowed Queen Eleanor of House Costain. How better to show that Magor's supporters had been forgiven than by taking one of his black brides to Queen, mayhaps even adopting her three sons by her first marriage? Queen Eleanor's proven fertility was another point in her favour, he argued. Lord Keltigar had two unwed daughters and had famously offered Magor his choice of them, now he offered the same girls again for Jeheris. Lord Baratheon was having none of it. I have seen your daughters, Rogar said to Keltigar. They have no chins, no teats, and no sense. The Queen Regent and her counsellors discussed the question of the King's marriage time and time again over most of a moon's turn, but came no closer to reaching a consensus. Jeheris himself was not privy to these debates. On this, Queen Alyssa and Lord Rogar agreed. Though Jeheris might well be wise beyond his years, he was still a boy, and ruled by a boy's desires, desires that on no account could be allowed to overrule the good of the realm. Queen Alyssa in particular had no doubt whatsoever about whom her son would choose to marry, were the choice left to him, her youngest daughter, his sister, the Princess Alessane. The Targaryens had been marrying brother to sister for centuries, of course, and Jeheris and Alisan had grown up expecting to wed, just as their elder siblings Aegon and Rhaena had. Moreover, Alisan was only two years younger than her brother, and the two children had always been close and strong in their affection and regard for one another. Their father, King Aenys, would certainly have wished for them to marry, and once that would have been their mother's wish as well but the horrors she had witnessed since her husband's death had persuaded Queen Alyssa to think elsewise. Though the warrior's sons and poor fellows had been disbanded and outlawed, many former members of both orders remained at large in the realm and might well take up their swords again if provoked. The Queen Regent feared their wrath, for she had vivid memories of all that had befallen her son Aegon and her daughter Rhaena when their marriage was announced. We dare not ride that road again, she is reported to have said, more than once. In this resolve she was supported by the newest member of the court, Septon Matthias, of the most devout, who had remained in King's Landing when the High Septon and the rest of his brethren returned to Old Town. A great whale of a man, as famed for his corpulence as for the magnificence of his robes, Matthias claimed descent from the Gardener kings of old, who had once ruled the Reach from their seat at Highgarden. Many regarded him as a near certainty to be chosen as the next High Septon. The present occupant of that holy office, whom Septon Moon had derided as the High Lickspittle, was cautious and complacent, so there was little to no danger of any marriage being denounced from Old Town so long as he continued to speak for the Seven from his seat in the Starry Sept. The father of the faithful was not a young man, however, the journey to King's Landing to officiate at the Golden Wedding had almost been the end of him, man said. If it should fall to me to don his mantle, his grace, of course, would have my support in any choice he might make, 
Septon Mateus assured the Queen Regent and her advisers, but not all of my brethren are so inclined, and, dare I say, there are other moons out there. Given all that has occurred, to marry brother to sister at this juncture would be seen as a grievous affront to the pious, and I fear for what might happen. Their queen's misgivings thus confirmed, Rogar Baratheon and the other lords put aside all consideration of Princess Alisan as a bride for her brother, Jeharis. The princess was three and ten years of age, and had recently celebrated her first flowering, so it was thought desirable to see her wed as soon as possible. Though still far apart as regarded a suitable match for the king, the council settled swiftly on a partner for the princess. She would be married on the seventh day of the new year to Orin Baratheon, the youngest of Lord Rogar's brothers. Thus it was settled by the Queen Regent and the King's Hand and their lords, counsellors, and advisers. But like many such arrangements through the ages, their plan was soon undone, for they had grievously underestimated the will and determination of Alisan Targaryen herself and her young king, Jeheris. No announcement had yet been made of Alisan's betrothal, so it is not known how word of the decision reached her ears. Grand Maester Benefer suspected a servant, for many such had come and gone whilst the lords debated in the Queen's solar. Lord Rogar himself was suspicious of Damon Valerian, the Lord Admiral, a prideful man who might well have believed that the Baratheons were overreaching themselves in hopes of displacing the Lords of the Tide as the second house in the realm. Years later, when these events had passed into legend, the small folk would tell each other that rats in the walls had overheard the Lords talking and rushed to the princess with the news. No record survives of what Alisan Targaryen said or thought when first she learned that she was to be wed to a youth ten years her senior, whom she scarcely knew and, if rumour can be believed, did not like. We know only what she did. Another girl might have wept, or raged, or run pleading to her mother. In many a sad song, maidens forced to wed against their will throw themselves from tall towers to their deaths. Princess Alisan did none of these things. Instead, she went directly to Jeheris. The young king was as displeased as his sister at the news. They will be making wedding plans for me as well, I do not doubt, he deduced at once. Like his sister, Jeheris did not waste time with reproaches, recriminations, or appeals. Instead, he acted. Summoning his king's guard, he instructed them to sail at once for Dragonstone, where he would meet them shortly. You have sworn me your swords and your obedience, he reminded his seven. Remember those vows, and speak no word of my departure. That night, under cover of darkness, King Jeheris and Princess Alisan mounted their dragons, Vermethor and Silverwing, and departed the Red Keep for the ancient Targaryen citadel below the Dragonmont. Reportedly, the first words the young king spoke upon landing were, I have need of a septum. The king rightly had no trust in Septon Mateus, who would surely have betrayed their plans, but the sept on Dragonstone was tended by an old man named Oswick, who had known Jeheris and Alisan since their births, and instructed them in the mysteries of the Seven throughout their childhood. As a younger man, Septon Oswick had ministered to King Aenys, and as a boy he had served as a novice in the court of Queen Rhaenys. He was more than familiar with the Targaryen tradition of sibling marriage, and when he heard the king's command, he assented at once.
The King's Guard arrived from King's Landing by galley a few days later. The following morning, as the sun rose, Jeheris Targaryen, the first of his name, took to wife his sister Alessan in the great yard at Dragonstone, before the eyes of gods and men and dragons. Septon Oswick performed the marriage rites. Though the old man's voice was thin and tremulous, no part of the ceremony was neglected. The seven knights of the King's Guard stood witness to the union, their white cloaks snapping in the wind. The castle's garrison and servants looked on as well, together with a good part of the small folk of the fishing village that huddled below Dragonstone's mighty curtain walls. A modest feast followed the ceremony, and many toasts were drunk to the health of the boy king and his new queen. Afterward, Jeheris and Alessan retired to the bedchamber where Aegon the Conqueror had once slept beside his sister Rhaenys. But in view of the bride's youth, there was no bedding ceremony, and the marriage was not consummated. That omission would prove to be of great importance when Lord Rogar and Queen Alyssa arrived belatedly from King's Landing in a war galley, accompanied by a dozen knights, forty men-at-arms, Septon Matthias, and Grand Maester Benefer, whose letters give us the most complete accounting of what transpired. Jeheris and Alisan met them inside the castle gates, holding hands. It is said that Queen Alyssa wept when she saw them. You foolish children, she said, you know not what you've done. Then up spoke Septon Matthias, his voice thunderous as he berated the king and queen and prophesied that this abomination would once more plunge all of Westeros into war. They shall curse your incest from the Dornish marches to the wall, and every pious son of the mother and the father shall denounce you as the sinners you are. The septon's face grew red and swollen as he raved, Benefer tells us, and spittle sprayed from his lips. Jeheris the conciliator is rightly honoured in the annals of the Seven Kingdoms for his calm demeanour and even temper. But let no man think that the fire of the Targaryens did not burn in his veins. He showed it then. When Septon Matthias finally paused for a breath, the king said, I will accept chastisement from her grace, my mother, but not from you. Hold your tongue, fat man. If another word passes your lips, I will have them sewn shut. Septon Matthias spoke no more. Lord Rogar was not so easily cowed. Blunt and to the point, he asked only if the marriage had been consummated. Tell me true, your grace, was there a bedding? Did you claim her maidenhead? No, the king replied, she is too young. At that, Lord Rogar smiled. Good, you are not wed he turned to the knights who had accompanied him from King's Landing. Separate these children, gently if you please. Escort the princess to Sea Dragon Tower and keep her there. His grace shall accompany us back to the Red Keep. But as his men moved forward, the seven knights of Jeheris's King's Guard stepped up and drew their swords. Come no closer, warned Sir Giles Morrigan. Any man who lays a hand upon our king and queen shall die today. Lord Rogar was dismayed. Sheathe your steel and move aside, he commanded. Have you forgotten? I am the king's hand. Aye, old sour Sam answered, but we're the king's guard, not the hand's guard. And it's the lad who sits the chair, not you. Rogar Baratheon bristled at Sir Samgood's words and answered, You are seven. I have half a hundred swords behind me. A word from me and they will cut you to pieces. They might kill us, replied young Pate the woodcock brandishing his spear, 
but you will be the first to die, my lord. You have my word upon that. What might have happened next, no man can say, had not Queen Alyssa chosen that moment to speak. I have seen enough, death, she said. So have we all. Put up your swords, sirs. What is done is done, and now we all must needs live with it. May the gods have mercy on the realm. She turned to her children. We shall go in peace. Let no man speak of what happened here today. As you command, mother, King Jaehaerys pulled his sister closer and put his arm around her. But do not think that you shall unmake this marriage. We are one now, and neither gods nor men shall part us. Never, his bride affirmed. Send me to the ends of the earth and wed me to the king of Mosavi or the lord of the grey waste. Silverwing will always bring me back to Jaehaerys. And with that she raised herself onto her toes and lifted her face to the king, and he kissed her full upon the lips, whilst all looked on. Also the confrontation at the gates of Dragonstone was set down by Grand Maester Benefer, who was there to witness it. From that day to this, the tale has been a favourite of lovesick maidens and their squires throughout the Seven Kingdoms, and many a bard has sung of the valour of the King's Guard, seven men in white cloaks who faced down half a hundred. All of these tellings overlook the presence of the castle garrison, however. Such records as have come down to us indicate that twenty archers and as many guardsmen were stationed on Dragonstone at this time, under the command of Sir Merrill Bullock and his sons Allen and Howard. Where their loyalties lay at this time and what part they might have played in any conflict shall never be known. But to suggest the king's seven stood alone mayhaps presumes too much. When the Hand and the Queen Regent had made their departure, the king and his young bride closed the castle gates and returned to their chambers. Dragonstone would remain their refuge and their residence for the remainder of Jaehaerys's minority. It is written that the young king and queen were seldom apart during that time, sharing every meal, talking late into the night of the green days of their childhood and the challenges ahead, fishing and hawking together, mingling with the island's small folk in dockside inns, reading to one another from dusty, leather-bound tomes they found in the castle library, taking lessons together from Dragonstone's maesters, for we still have much to learn, Alisan is said to have reminded her husband praying beside Septon Oswick. They flew together as well, all around the Dragonmont and oft as far as Driftmark. If servants' tales may be believed, the king and his new queen slept naked and shared many long and lingering kisses, abed and at table, and at many other times throughout the day, yet never consummated their union. Another year and a half would pass before Jaehaerys and Alisan would finally join as man and woman. Whenever lords and council members travelled to Dragonstone to consult with the young king, as they did from time to time, Jaehaerys received them in the chamber of the painted table, where his grandsire had once planned his conquest of Westeros, with Alisan ever by his side. Aegon had no secrets from Rhaenys and Visenya, and I have none from Alisan, he said. Though it might well have been that there were no secrets between them during these bright days in the morning of the marriage, their union itself remained a secret to most of Westeros. Upon their return to King's Landing, Lord Rogar instructed all those who had accompanied them to Dragonstone to speak no word of what had transpired there, if they wished to keep their tongues. Nor was there any announcement made to the realm at large. 
when Septon Mateus attempted to send word of the match to the high Septon and most devout in Old Town, Grand Maester Benefer burned his letter, rather than dispatch a raven on orders from the hand. The Lord of Storm's End wanted time. Angry at the disrespect he felt the king had shown him and unaccustomed to defeat, Rogar Baratheon remained determined to find a way to part Jeheris and Alisan. So long as their marriage remained unconsummated, he believed, a chance remained. Best then to keep the wedding secret so it might be undone without anyone being the wiser. Queen Alyssa wanted time as well, though for a different reason. What is done is done, she had said at the gates of Dragonstone, and so she believed. But memories of the bloodshed and chaos that had greeted the marriage of her other son and daughter still haunted her nights, and the Queen Regent was desperate to find some way to ascertain that history would not be repeated. Meanwhile, she and her lord husband still had a realm to rule for the best part of a year, until Jeheris attained his sixteenth name day and took the power into his own hands. And so matters stood in Westeros as the year of the three brides grew to an end and gave way to a new year, the fiftieth since Aegon's conquest. A Surfeit of Rulers All men are sinners, the fathers of the faith teach us. Even the noblest of kings and the most chivalrous of knights may find themselves overcome by rage and lust and envy, and commit acts that shame them and tarnish their good names. And the vilest of men and the wickedest of women likewise may do good from time to time, for love and compassion and pity may be found in even the blackest of hearts. We are as the gods made us, wrote Septon Bath, the wisest man ever to serve as the hand of the king. Strong and weak, good and bad, cruel and kind, heroic and selfish. Know that, if you would rule over the kingdoms of men. Seldom was the truth of his words seen as clearly as during the fiftieth year after Aegon's conquest. As the new year dawned, all across the realm plans were being made to mark a half-century of Targaryen rule over Westeros, with feasts, fairs, and tourneys. The horrors of King Magor's rule were receding into the past, the Iron Throne and the Faith were reconciled, and the young King Jeheris I was the darling of small folk and great lords alike, from Old Town to the Wall. Yet unbeknownst to all but a few, storm clouds were gathering on the horizon, and faintly in the distance wise men could hear a rumble of thunder. A realm with two kings is like a man with two heads, the small folk are wont to say. In 50 AC, the realm of Westeros found itself blessed with one king, a hand, and three queens, as in King Magor's day. But whereas Magor's queens had been consorts, subservient to his will, living and dying at his whim, each of the queens of the half-century was a power in her own right. In the Red Keep of King's Landing, sat the Queen Regent Alyssa, widow of the late King Aenys, mother to his son Jaehaerys, and wife to the King's Hand, Rogar Baratheon. Just across Blackwater Bay on Dragonstone, a younger queen had arisen when Alyssa's daughter Alysanne, a maid of thirteen years, had pledged her troth to her brother King Jaehaerys, against the wishes of her mother and her mother's lord husband. And far to the west on Fair Isle, 
with the whole width of Westeros separating her from both mother and sister, was Alyssa's eldest daughter, the dragon rider Rhaena Targaryen, widow of Prince Aegon the Uncrowned. In the Westerlands, Riverlands, and parts of the Reach, men were already calling her the Queen in the West. Two sisters and a mother, the three queens were bound by blood and grief and suffering, and yet between them lay shadows, old and new, growing darker by the day. The amity and unity of purpose that had enabled Jeharis, his sisters and their mother, to topple Magor the Cruel had begun to fray, as long-simmering resentments and divisions made themselves felt. For the remainder of the regency, the boy king and his little queen would find themselves deeply at odds with the king's hand and the queen regent, in a rivalry that would continue into Jeharis's own reign and threaten to plunge the seven kingdoms back into war. It should be noted, lest we be charged with a mission, that there was a fourth queen in Westeros in 50 AC, the twice-widowed Queen Eleanor of House Costain, who had found King Magor dead upon the Iron Throne, had departed King's Landing after Jeharis's ascent. Dressed in the robes of a penitent, and accompanied only by a handmaid and one leal man-at-arms, she made her way to the Eyrie in the Vale of Arryn to visit the eldest of her three sons, Viseth Theo Bolling, and thence to Highgarden in the Reach, where her second son had been fostered to Lord Tyrell. Once satisfied of their well-being, the former queen reclaimed her youngest boy and repaired to her father's seat at Three Towers in the Reach, where she declared she would live quietly for the remainder of her life. Fate and King Jeheris had other plans for her, as we shall relate later. Suffice it to say that Queen Eleanor played no role in the events of 50 AC. The immediate cause of the tension was the king's sudden and secret marriage to his sister, which had taken the Hand and the Queen Regent unawares, and thrown their own plans and schemes into disarray. It would be a mistake to believe that was the sole cause of the estrangement, however, the other weddings that had made 49 AC the year of the three brides had also left scars. Lord Rogar had never asked Jeheris for leave to wed his mother, an omission the boy king took for a sign of disrespect. Moreover, his grace did not approve of the match. As he would later confess to Septon Bath, he valued Lord Rogar as a counsellor and friend, but he did not need a second father, and thought his own judgment temperament and intelligence to be superior to his hands. Jeheris also felt he should have been consulted about his sister Reyna's marriage, though he felt that slight less keenly. Queen Alyssa, for her part, was deeply hurt that she had neither been advised of nor invited to Reyna's wedding on Fair Isle. Away in the west, Reyna Targaryen nursed her own grievances. As she confided to the old friends and favourites, she had gathered around her, Queen Rhaena neither understood nor shared her mother's affection for Rogar Baratheon. Though she honoured him grudgingly for rising in support of her brother Jeheris against their uncle Magor, his inaction when her own husband, Prince Aegon, faced Magor in the battle beneath the god's eye was something she could neither forget nor forgive. Also, with the passage of time, Queen Rhaena grew ever more resentful that her own claim to the Iron Throne and that of her daughters, had been disregarded in favour of that of my baby brother, as she was wont to call Jeheris. She was the firstborn, she reminded those who would listen, and had been a dragon rider before any of her siblings, yet all of them, and 
even my own mother had conspired to pass her over. Looking back now with the benefit of hindsight, it is easy to say that Jeheris and Alisan had the right of it in the conflicts that arose during the last year of their mother's regency, and to cast Queen Alyssa and Lord Rogar as villains. That is how the singers tell the tale, certainly. The swift and sudden marriage of Jeheris and Alisan was a romance unequalled since the days of Florian the Fool and his jonquils, who hear them sing of it, and in songs as ever, love conquers all. The truth, we submit, is a deal less simple. Queen Alyssa's misgivings about the match grew out of genuine concern for her children, the Targaryen dynasty, and the realm as a whole. Nor were her fears without foundation. Lord Rogar Baratheon's motives were less selfless. A proud man, he had been stunned and angered by the ingratitude of the boy king he had regarded as a son, and humiliated when forced to back down at the gates of Dragonstone before half a hundred of his men. A warrior to the bone, Rogar had once dreamed of facing Magor the Cruel in single combat, and could not stomach being shamed by a lad of fifteen years. Lest we think too harshly of him, however, we would do well to remember Septon Bath's words. Though he would do some cruel, foolish, and evil things during his last year as hand, he was not a cruel or evil man at heart, nor even a fool. He had been a hero once, and we must remember that even as we look at the darkest year of his life. In the immediate aftermath of his confrontation with Jaehaerys, Lord Rogar could think of little else but the humiliation he had suffered. His lordship's first impulse was to return to Dragonstone with more men, enough to overwhelm the castle garrison and resolve the situation by force. As for the king's guard, Lord Rogar reminded the council that the white swords had sworn to lay down their lives for the king, and I shall be pleased to give them that honour. When Lord Tully pointed out that Jeheris could simply close the gates of Dragonstone against them, Lord Rogar was undeterred. Let him! I can take the castle by storm if need be. In the end, only Queen Alyssa could reach his lordship through his wrath and dissuade him from this folly. My love, she said softly, my children ride dragons, and we do not. The Queen Regent, no less than her husband, wished to have the King's rash marriage undone, for she was convinced that word of it would once again set the faith against the crown. Her fears were fanned by Septon Matthias. Once away from Jeheris, and secure in the knowledge that his lips would not be sewn shut, the Septon found his tongue again, and spoke of little else but how all decent folk would condemn the king's incestuous union. Had Jeheris and Alisan returned to King's Landing in time to celebrate the new year, as Queen Alyssa prayed, they will come to their senses and repent this folly, she told the council, reconciliation might have been possible. But that did not happen. When a fortnight came and went, and then another, and still the king did not reappear at court, Alyssa announced her intention to return to Dragonstone, this time alone, to beg her children to come home. Lord Rogar angrily forbade it. If you go crawling back to him, the boy will never listen to you again, he said. He has put his own desires ahead of the good of the realm, and that cannot be allowed. Do you want him to end as his father did? And so the queen bent to his will, and did not go. 
That Queen Alyssa wished to do the right thing, no man should doubt, Septon Bath wrote years later. Sad to say, however, she oft seemed at a loss as to what that thing might be. She desired above all to be loved, admired, and praised, a yearning she shared with King Aenys, her first husband. A ruler must sometimes do things that are necessary but unpopular, however, though he knows that opprobrium and censure must surely follow. These things Queen Alyssa could seldom bring herself to do. Days passed and turned to weeks, and thence to fortnights, whilst hearts hardened and men grew more resolute on both sides of Blackwater Bay. The boy king and his little queen remained on Dragonstone, awaiting the day when Jeheris would take the rule of the Seven Kingdoms in his own hands. Queen Alyssa and Lord Rogar continued to hold the reins of power in King's Landing, searching for a way to undo the king's marriage and avert the calamity they were certain was to come. Aside from the council, they told no one of what had transpired on Dragonstone, and Lord Rogar commanded the men who had accompanied them to speak no word of what they had seen, at the penalty of losing their tongues. Once the marriage had been annulled, his lordship reasoned, it would be as if it had never happened, so far as most of Westeros was concerned, so long as it remained secret. Until the union was consummated, it could still easily be set aside. This would prove to be a vain hope, as we know now, but to Rogar Baratheon in 50 AC it seemed possible. For a time he must surely have drawn encouragement from the king's own silence. Jaehaerys had moved swiftly to marry Alisan, but having done the deed he seemed in no great haste to announce it. He certainly had the means to do so, had he so desired. Maester Caliper, still spry at eighty, had been serving since Queen Visenya's day and was ably assisted by two younger maesters. Dragonstone had a full complement of ravens. At a word from Jaehaerys, his marriage could have been proclaimed from one end of the realm to the other. He did not speak that word. Scholars have debated ever since as to the reasons for his silence. Was he repenting a match, made in haste as Queen Alyssa would have wished? Had Alisan somehow offended him? Had he grown fearful of the realm's response to the marriage, recalling all that had befallen Aegon and Rhaena? Was it possible that Septon Mateus's dire prophecies had shaken him more than he cared to admit? Or was he simply a boy of fifteen who had acted rashly with no thought to the consequences, only to find himself now at a loss as to how to proceed? Arguments can and have been made for all these explanations, but in light of what we know now about Jaehaerys I Targaryen, they ultimately ring hollow. Young or old, this was a king who never acted without thinking. To this writer it seems plain that Jaehaerys was not repenting his marriage and had no intention of undoing it. He had chosen the queen he wanted and would make the realm aware of that in due course, but at a time of his own choosing in a manner best calculated to lead to acceptance. When he was a man grown and a king ruling in his own right, not a boy who had wed in defiance of his regent's wishes. The young king's absence from court did not go unnoticed for long. The ashes of the bonfires lit in celebration of the new year had scarce grown cold before the people of King's Landing began asking questions. To curtail the rumours, Queen Alyssa put out word that his grace was resting and reflecting on Dragonstone, 
the ancient seat of his house. But as more time passed, with still no sign of Jeheris, lords and small folk alike began to wonder. Was the king ill? Had he been made a prisoner for reasons yet unknown? The personable and handsome boy king had moved amongst the people of King's Landing so freely, seemingly delighting in mingling with them, that this sudden disappearance seemed unlike him. Queen Alessand, for her part, was in no haste to return to court. Here I have you to myself, day and night, she told Jeheris. When we go back, I shall be fortunate to snatch an hour with you, for every man in Westeros will want a piece of you. For her, these days on Dragonstone were an idyll. Many years from now, when we are old and grey, we shall look back upon these days and smile, remembering how happy we were. Jeheris himself no doubt shared some of these sentiments, but the young king had other reasons for remaining on Dragonstone. Unlike his uncle Magor, he was not prone to bursts of rage, but he was more than capable of anger, and he would never forget nor forgive his deliberate exclusion from the council meetings wherein his marriage and that of his sister were being discussed. And whilst he would always remain grateful to Rogar Baratheon for helping him to the Iron Throne, Jeheris did not intend to be ruled by him. I had one father, he said to Maester Culliper during those days on Dragonstone. I do not require a second. The king recognized and appreciated the virtues of the hand, but he was aware of his flaws as well, flaws that had become very apparent in the days leading up to the Golden Wedding, when Jeheris himself had sat in audience with the lords of the realm, whilst Lord Rogar was hunting, drinking, and deflowering maidens. Jeheris was aware of his own shortcomings, too, shortcomings he intended to rectify before he sat the Iron Throne. His father, King Aenys, had been slighted as weak, in part because he was not the warrior that his brother Magor was. Jeheris was determined that no man would ever question his own courage or skill at arms. On Dragonstone he had Sir Merrill Bullock, commander of the castle garrison, his sons Sir Alan and Sir Howard, a seasoned master-at-arms in Sir Elias Scales, and his own seven, the finest fighters in the realm. Every morning Jeheris trained with them in the castle yard, shouting at them to come at him harder, to press him, harry him, and attack him in every way they knew. From sunrise till noon he worked with them, honing his skills with sword and spear and mace and axe, whilst his new queen looked on. It was a hard and brutal regimen. Each bout ended only when the king himself or his opponent declared him dead. Jeheris died so often that the men of the garrison made a game of it, shouting, The king is dead! every time he fell, and long live the king when he struggled to his feet. His foes began a contest, wagering with one another to see which of them could kill the king the most. The victor, we are told, was young Sir Pate the Woodcock, whose darting spear purportedly gave his grace fits. Jeheris was oft, bruised and bloody by evening to Alisan's distress, but his prowess improved so markedly that near the end of his time on Dragonstone, old Sir Elias himself told him, Your grace, you will never be a king's guard but if by some sorcery or Uncle Magor himself were to rise from the grave, my coin would be on you. One evening, after a day in which Jeheris had been severely tested and battered, Maester Culliper said to him, Your Grace, why do you punish yourself so harshly? 
the realm is at peace. The young king only smiled and replied, the realm was at peace when my grandsire died, but scarcely had my father climbed onto the throne than foes rose up on every side. They were testing him to learn if he was strong or weak. They will test me as well. He was not wrong, though his first trial, when it came, was to be of a very different nature, one that no amount of training in the yards of Dragonstone could possibly have prepared him for, for it was his worth as a man and his love for his little queen that were to be put to the test. We know very little about the childhood of Alisan Targaryen, as the fifth-born child of King Aenys and Queen Alyssa, and a female, observers at court found her of less interest than her older siblings who stood higher in the line of succession. From what little has come down to us, Alisan was a bright but unremarkable girl, small but never sickly, courteous, biddable, with a sweet smile and a pleasing voice. To the relief of her parents, she displayed none of the timidity that had afflicted her elder sister Raina as a small child. Neither did she exhibit the willful and stubborn temperament of Raina's daughter, Aria. As a princess of the royal household, Alisan would of course have had servants and companions from an early age. As an infant, certainly, she would have had a wet nurse. Like most noble women, Queen Alyssa did not give suck to her own children. Later, a maester would have taught her to read and write and do sums, and a scepter would have instructed her in piety, deportment, and the mysteries of the faith. Girls of common birth would have served as her maids, washing her clothing and emptying her chamber pot, and in good time she would certainly have taken ladies of a like age and noble blood as companions, to ride and play and sew with. Alisan did not choose these companions for herself. They were selected for her by her mother, Queen Alyssa, and they came and went with some frequency, to ascertain that the princess did not grow too fond of any of them. Her sister Raina's penchant for showering an unseemly amount of affection and attention on a succession of favourites, some of whom were considered less than suitable, had been the source of much whispering at court, and the Queen did not want Alisan to be the subject of similar rumours. All this changed when King Aenys died on Dragonstone and his brother, Magor, returned from across the narrow sea to seize the Iron Throne. The new king had little love and less trust for any of his brother's children, and he had his mother, the dowager Queen Visenya, to enforce his will. Queen Alyssa's household knights and servants were dismissed, together with the servants and companions of her children, and Jaehaerys and Alisan were made wards of their great-aunt, the fearsome Visenya. Hostages in all but name, they spent their uncle's reign being shuttled between Driftmark, Dragonstone, and King's Landing, at the will of others, until Visenya's death in 44 AC offered Queen Alyssa an opportunity to escape, a chance she seized with alacrity, fleeing Dragonstone with Jaehaerys, Alisan, and the blade Dark Sister. No reliable accounts of Princess Alisan's life after the escape survive to this day. She does not appear again in the annals of the realm until the final days of Magor's bloody reign when her mother and Lord Rogar rode forth from Storm's End at the head of an army, whilst Alisan, Jaehaerys, and their sister Raina descended on King's Landing with their dragons. Undoubtedly, Princess Alisan had handmaids and companions in the days that followed Magor's death. Their names and particulars have not come down to us, unfortunately. 
We do know that none of them came with the princess when she and Jeheris fled the Red Keep on their dragons. Aside from the seven knights of the king's guard and the castle garrison, cooks, stable hands and other servants, the king and his bride were unattended on Dragonstone. That was hardly proper for a princess, let alone for a queen. Alisanne must have her household, and in that her mother Alyssa saw an opportunity to undermine and mayhaps undo her marriage. The Queen Regent resolved to dispatch to Dragonstone a carefully selected company of companions and servants to see to the young Queen's needs. The plan, Grand Maester Benefer assures us, was Queen Alyssa's. But it was one that Lord Rogar assented to gladly, for he saw at once a way to twist it to his own ends. The aged Septon Oswick, who had performed the wedding rites for Jeheris and Alisan, kept the sept on Dragonstone, but a young lady of royal birth required one of her own sex to see to her religious instruction. Queen Alyssa sent three, the formidable scepter Isabel and two well-born novices of Alisan's own age, Lyra and Edith. To take charge of the serving girls and maids of Alisan's household, she dispatched Lady Lucinda Tully, the wife of the Lord of Riverrun, whose fierce piety was renowned through all the land. With her came her younger sister, Ella, of House Broom, a modest maid whose name had briefly been offered as a match for Jeheris. Lord Keltigar's daughters, so recently scorned by the hand as being chinless, breastless, and witless, were included as well. We had as well get some use of them, Lord Rogar supposedly told their father. Three other girls of noble birth made up the remainder of the company, one each from the Vale, the Stormlands, and the Reach, Jenis of House Templeton, Corianne of House Wild, and Rosamond of House Ball. Queen Alyssa wanted her daughter attended by suitable companions of her own age and station, no doubt, but that was not her sole motivation in sending these ladies to Dragonstone. Scepter Isabel, and the novices Edith and Lyra, and the deeply pious Lady Lucinda and her sister had a further charge. It was the hope of the Queen Regent that these fiercely righteous women might impress upon Alisan, and mayhaps even Jeheris, that for brother to lie with sister was an abomination in the eyes of the faith. The children, as Alyssa persisted in calling the king and queen, were not evil, only young and willful. Suitably instructed, they might see the error of their ways and repent their marriage before it tore the realm apart. Or so she prayed. Lord Rogar's motives were baser. Unable to rely on the loyalty of the castle garrison or the knights of the king's guard, the hand needed eyes and ears on Dragonstone. All that Jeheris and Alisan said and did was to be reported back to him, he made clear to Lady Lucinda and the others. He was especially anxious to learn if and when the king and queen intended on consummating their marriage. That, he stressed, must be prevented. And mayhaps there was more. And now, unfortunately, we must give some consideration to a certain distasteful book that first appeared in the Seven Kingdoms some forty years after the events presently being discussed. Copies of this book still pass from hand to hand in the low places of Westeros, and may oft be found in certain brothels, those catering to patrons able to read, and the libraries of men of low morals, where they are best kept under lock and key, hidden from the eyes of maidens, good wives, children, and the chaste and pious. 
The book in question is known under various titles, amongst them Sins of the Flesh, The High and the Low, A Wanton's Tale, and The Wickedness of Men. But all versions bear the subtitle A Caution for Young Girls. It purports to be the testimony of a young maid of noble birth who surrendered her virtue to a groom in her lord father's castle, gave birth to a child out of wedlock, and thereafter found herself partaking of every sort of wickedness imaginable during a long life of sin, suffering, and slavery. If the author's tale is true, parts of it strain credulity, during the course of her life she found herself a handmaid to a queen, the paramour of a young knight, a camp follower in the disputed lands of Essos, a serving wench in Mir, a mummer in Tyroche, the plaything of a corsair queen in the Basilisk Isles, a slave in old Volantis, where she was tattooed, pierced, and ringed, the handmaid of a Carthine warlock, and, finally, the mistress of a pleasure house in Lys, before ultimately returning to Old Town and the Faith. Purportedly, she ended her life as a scepter in the starry sept, where she set down this story of her life to warn other young maids not to do as she had done. The lascivious details of the author's erotic adventures need not concern us here. Our only interest is in the early part of her sordid tale, the story of her youth. For the alleged author of A Caution for Young Girls is none other than Corianne Wilde, one of the girls sent to Dragonstone as a companion to the little queen. We have no way to ascertain the veracity of her story, nor even whether she was in truth the author of this infamous book. Some argue plausibly that the text is the product of several hands, for the style of the prose varies greatly from episode to episode. Lady Corianne's early history, however, is confirmed in the accounts of the maester who served at the Rain House during her youth. At the age of thirteen, he records, Lord Wilde's younger daughter was indeed seduced and deflowered by a surly lad from the stables. In A Caution for Young Girls, this lad is described as a handsome boy her own age, but the maester's account differs, painting the seducer as a pox-scarred varlet of thirty years, distinguished only by a male member as stout as a stallion's. Whatever the truth, the surly lad was gelded and sent to the wall as soon as his deed was known, whilst Lady Corianne was confined to her chambers to give birth to his base-born son. The boy was sent away soon after birth to Storm's End, where he would be fostered by one of the castle stewards and his barren wife. The bastard boy was born in 48 AC, according to the maester's journals. Lady Corianne was carefully watched afterward, but few beyond the walls of the rain house knew of her shame. When the raven came to summon her to King's Landing, her lady mother told her sternly that she was never to speak of her child or her sin. In the Red Keep they will take you for a maiden. But as the girl made her way to the city, escorted by her father and a brother, they stopped for the night at an inn on the south bank of the Blackwater Rush beside the ferry landing. There she found a certain great lord awaiting her arrival. And here the tale grows even more tangled, for the identity of the man at the inn is a matter of some dispute, even amongst those who accept a caution for young girls to contain a modicum of truth. Over the years and centuries, as the book was copied and recopied, many changes and emendations crept into the text. 
The maesters who labor at the Citadel copying books are rigorously trained to reproduce the original word for word, but few mundane scribes are so disciplined. Such septons, septers, and holy sisters as copy and illuminate books for the faith oft strike out or alter any passages they believe to be offensive, obscene, or theologically unsound. As virtually the whole of A Caution for Young Girls is obscene, it was not like to have been transcribed by either maesters or septons. Given the number of copies known to exist, hundreds, though as many more were burned by Baylor the Blessed, the scribes responsible were most likely septons expelled from the faith for drunkenness, theft, or fornication, failed students who left the citadel without a chain, hired quills from the free cities, or mummers, the worst of all. Lacking the rigor of maesters, such scribes oft feel free to improve on the texts they are copying. Mummers in particular are prone to this. In the case of a caution for young girls, such improvements largely consisted of adding ever more episodes of depravity and changing the existing episodes to make them even more disturbing and lascivious. As alteration followed alteration over the years, it became ever more difficult to ascertain which was the original text, to the extent that even maesters at the Citadel cannot agree as to the title of the book, as has been noted. The identity of the man who met Corianne Wilde in the inn by the ferry, if indeed such a meeting ever took place, is another matter of contention. In the copies entitled Sins of the Flesh and The High and the Low, which tend to be the older versions and the shortest, the man at the inn is identified as Sir Boris Baratheon, eldest of Lord Rogar's four brothers. In A Wanton's Tale and The Wickedness of Men, however, the man is Lord Rogar himself. All these versions agree on what happened next. Dismissing Lady Corianne's father and brother, the Lord commanded the girl to disrobe, so he might inspect her. He ran his hands over every part of me, she wrote, and bade me turn this way and that, and bend and stretch and open my legs to his gaze, until at last he pronounced himself satisfied. Only then did the man reveal the purpose of the summons that had brought her to King's Landing. She was to be sent to Dragonstone, a supposed maid, to serve as one of Queen Alison's companions, but once there— she was to use her wiles and her body to beguile the king into bed. Jaehaerys is a man-maid, like as not, and besotted with his sister, this man supposedly told her. But Alisan is but a child, and you are a woman any man would want. Once his grace tastes your charms, he may come to his senses and abandon this folly of a marriage. He may even choose to keep you afterward, who can say? There can be no question of marriage, of course— but you would have jewels, servants, whatever you might want. There are rich rewards in being a king's bedwarmer. If Alisan should discover you abed together, so much the better. She is a prideful girl and would be quick to abandon an unfaithful spouse, and if you should get with child again, you and the babe would be well taken care of, and your father and mother will be richly rewarded for your service to the crown." Certain copies of A Wanton's Tale include an additional amorous episode wherein Lord Rogar himself has carnal knowledge of the girl all through the night, but these are almost certainly a later edition by some lustful scribe or depraved panda. Can we put any credence in this tale? 
At this late date, so far removed from the events in question, with all the principals long dead, there is no way to be certain. Beyond the testimony of the girl herself, we have no source to verify that this meeting by the ferry ever took place. And if some Baratheon did indeed meet privily with Corianne Wilde before she reached King's Landing, we cannot know what words he might have spoken to her. He could as easily have simply been instructing her in her duties as a spy and tattle as the other girls had been instructed. Archmaester Cray, writing of the Citadel in the last years of King Jeheris's long reign, believed that the meeting at the inn was a clumsy calumny intended to blacken the name of Lord Rogar, and went so far as to attribute the lie to Sir Boris Baratheon himself, who quarrelled bitterly with his brother in later life. Other scholars, including Maester Ryben, the Citadel's foremost expert on banned, forbidden, fraudulent and obscene texts, put the story down as no more than a bawdy tale of the sort known to excite the lust of young boys, bastards, whores, and the men who partake of their favours. Amongst the small folk there are always men of a lascivious character who delight in tales of great lords and noble knights despoiling maidens, Ryben wrote. For this persuades them that their betters share their own base lusts. Mayhaps. Yet there are certain things that we do know beyond a doubt that may allow us to draw our own conclusions. We do know that the younger daughter of Morgan Wilde, Lord of the Rainhouse, was deflowered at an early age and gave birth to a bastard boy. We can be reasonably certain that Lord Rogar knew of her shame. Not only was he Lord Morgan's liege, but the child was placed in his own household. We know that Corianne Wilde was amongst the maids who were sent to Dragonstone as companions for Queen Alessandre. A singularly curious choice, if a lady-in-waiting was all she was meant to be, for scores of other young girls of noble birth and suitable age were also available, girls whose maidenheads were intact, and whose virtue was beyond reproach. Why her, many have asked in the years since. Did she have some special gift, some particular charm? If so, no one remarked on it at the time. Could Lord Rogar or Queen Alyssa have been indebted to her Lord Father or Lady Mother for some past favour or kindness? We have no record of it. No plausible explanation for the selection of Corianne Wilde has ever been offered, save for the simple ugly answer proffered by a caution for young girls. She was sent to Dragonstone not for Alisan, but for Jeheris. It is said that many years later, when King Aegon IV was in his cups, Someone raised the matter in his presence. His grace supposedly laughed and stated his conviction that if Lord Rogar were no fool, he would have instructed all of the maidens sent to Dragonstone in 50 AC to bed the young king, since the hand could not have known which of them Jeheris would prefer. This infamous suggestion has taken root amongst the small folk, but it is unsupported by proof of any sort, and may be safely dismissed. Court records indicate that Scepter Isabel Lady Lucinda and the other women chosen for Alessand Targaryen's household boarded the trading galley Wise Woman at dawn on the seventh day of the second moon of 50 AC and left for Dragonstone on the morning tide. Queen Alyssa had sent word of their coming ahead by Raven, yet even so she had some concern that the Wise Women, as they became known from that day forth, would find the gates of Dragonstone closed to them. Her fears were unfounded. The little queen and two Kingsguard met them at the harbour as they disembarked, and Alessan welcomed each of them with glad smiles and gifts.
Before we relate what happened afterward, let us turn our gaze briefly to Fair Isle, where Reina Targaryen, the Queen in the West, resided with her new husband and a court of her own. It will be recalled that Queen Alyssa had been no more pleased by her eldest daughter's third marriage than by the one her son would soon make, though Reyna's marriage was of less consequence. She was not alone in this, for in truth, Andro Farman was a curious choice for one with the blood of the dragon in her veins. The second son of Lord Farman, not even the heir, Andro was said to be a handsome boy with pale blue eyes and long flaxen hair, but he was nine years younger than the Queen, and even at his own father's court, there were those who scorned him as half a girl himself, for he was soft of speech and gentle of nature. A singular failure as a squire, he had never become a knight, having none of the martial skills of his lord father and elder brother. For a time his sire had considered sending him to Old Town to forge a maester's chain, until his own maester told him that the boy was simply not clever enough and could hardly read nor write. Later, when asked why she had chosen such an unpromising spouse, Reyna Targaryen replied, He was kind to me. Andro's father had been kind to her as well, offering her refuge on Fair Isle after the battle beneath the god's eye, when her uncle, King Magor, was demanding her capture, and the poor fellows of the realm were denouncing her as a vile sinner and her daughters as abominations. Some have put forward the suggestion that the widowed queen took Andro for her husband in part to repay his father for that kindness, for Lord Farman, himself a second son, who had never expected to rule, was known to have great fondness for Andro, despite his deficiencies. Mayhaps there is some truth in that assertion, but another possibility, first put forward by Lord Farman's maester, may cut closer to the bone. The queen found her true love on Fair Isle. Maester Smyke wrote to the Citadel, not with Andro, but with his sister, Lady Elisa. Three years Andro's elder, Elisa Farman shared her brother's blue eyes and long flaxen hair, but elsewise she was as unlike him as a sibling could be. Sharp of wit and sharper of tongue, she loved horses, dogs, and hawks. She was a fine singer and a skilled archer, but her great love was sailing. The wind our steed, were the words of the Farmans of Fair Isle, who had sailed the Western Seas since the Dawn Age, and Lady Elissa embodied them. As a child, it was said that she spent more time at sea than upon the land. Her father's crews used to laugh to see her climbing the rigging like a monkey. She sailed her own boat around Fair Isle at the age of four and ten, and by the time she was twenty she had voyaged as far north as Bear Island and as far south as the Arbor. Oft-times, to the horror of her lord father and lady mother, she spoke of her desire to take a ship beyond the western horizon, to learn what strange and wondrous lands might lie on the far side of the sunset sea. Lady Alyssa had been twice betrothed, once at twelve and once at sixteen, but she had frightened off both boys, as her own father admitted ruefully. In Reyna Targaryen, however, she found a like-minded companion, and in her the queen found a new confidant. Together with Elaine Royce and Samantha Stokeworth, two of Rayna's oldest friends, they became nigh inseparable, a court within the court that Sir Franklin Farman, Lord Mark's elder son, dubbed the Four-Headed Beast. Andrew Farman, Rayna's new husband, was admitted to their circle from time to time, but never so often as to be taken for a fifth head. 
Most tellingly, Queen Rainer never took him flying with her on the back of her dragon, Dreamfire, an adventure she shared frequently with the ladies Elissa, Alain, and Sam. In fairness, it is more than possible that the Queen invited Andro to share the sky with her, only to have him decline, for he was not of an adventurous disposition. It would be a mistake to regard Queen Rainer's time at Faircastle as an idyll, however. Not everyone welcomed her presence by any means. Even here, on this distant isle, there were poor fellows, angered that Lord Mark, like his father before him, had given support and sanctuary to one they regarded as an enemy of the faith. The continued presence of Dreamfire on the island was also creating problems. Glimpsed every few years, a dragon was a wonder and a terror to behold, and it was true that some of the Fair Islanders took pride in having a dragon of our own. Others, however, were made anxious by the presence of the great beast, especially as she grew larger and hungrier. Feeding a growing dragon is no small thing, and when it became known that Dreamfire had produced a clutch of dragon eggs, a begging brother from the inland hills began to preach that Fair Isle would soon be overrun by dragons, devouring sheep and cows and men alike, unless a dragon slayer came forth to put an end to the scourge. Lord Farman sent forth knights to seize the man and silence him, but not before thousands had heard his prophecies. Though the preacher died in the dungeons under Faircastle, his words lived on, filling the ignorant with fear wherever they were heard. Even within the walls of Lord Farman's own seat, Queen Rainer had enemies, chief amongst them his lordship's heir. Sir Franklin had fought in the battle beneath the god's eye and taken a wound there, blood shed in the service of Prince Aegon the Uncrowned. His grandsire had died upon that battlefield, together with his eldest son, and it had been left to him to bring their corpses home to Fair Isle. Yet it seemed to him that Reyna Targaryen showed little remorse for all the grief she had brought to House Farman, and little gratitude to him personally. He also resented her friendship with his sister, Elissa. Instead of encouraging her in what he regarded as her wild, willful ways, Sir Franklin thought the Queen should be enjoining her to do her duty to her house by making an appropriate marriage and producing children. Nor did he appreciate the manner in which the four-headed beast had somehow become the centre of court life at Faircastle, whilst his lord father and himself were increasingly disregarded. In that, he was well justified. More and more high-born lords from the Westerlands and beyond were visiting Fair Isle, Maester Smike noted, but when they came, it was to have audience with the Queen in the West, not with a minor lordling of a small isle and his son. None of this was of great concern to the Queen and her familiars, so long as Mark Farman ruled in Faircastle, for his lordship was an amiable and good-natured man who loved all his children, his wayward daughter and weakling son included, and loved Rainer Targaryen for loving them as well. Less than a fortnight after the Queen and Andro Farman had celebrated the first anniversary of their union, however, Lord Mark died suddenly at his own table, choking to death upon a fishbone at the age of six and forty. And with his passing, Sir Franklin became the Lord of Fair Isle. He wasted little time. On the day after his father's funeral, he summoned Rainer to his great hall. He would not deign to go to her, and commanded her to remove herself from his island. "'You are not wanted here,' he told her. "'You are not welcome here. 
Take your dragon with you, and your friends, and my little brother, who would surely piss his breeches if he were made to stay. But do not presume to take my sister. She will remain here, and she will be wed to a man of my choosing. Franklin Farman did not lack for courage, as Maester Smike wrote in a letter to the Citadel. He did lack for sense, however, and in that moment he did not seem to realize how close he stood to death. I could see the fire in her eyes, the maester said, and for a moment I could see Fair Castle burning, the white towers blackening and collapsing into the sea as flames leapt from every window, and the dragon wheeled about again and again. Rainer Targaryen was the blood of the dragon, and far too proud to linger long where she was not wanted. She departed Fair Isle that very night, taking wing for Casterly Rock upon Dreamfire, after instructing her husband and companions to follow her by ship, with all those who might love me. When Andro, flushed with anger, offered to face his brother in single combat, the queen quickly dissuaded him. He would cut you to pieces, my love, she told him, and were I to be thrice widowed, men would name me a witch, or worse, and hound me from Westeros. Lyman Lannister, lord of Casterly Rock, had sheltered her before, she reminded him, Queen Rhaena was confident that he would welcome her again. Andrew Farman, Samantha Stokeworth, and Alain Royce set out to follow the next morning, together with more than forty of the Queen's friends, servants, and hangers-on, for her grace had gathered a sizable coterie about her as the Queen in the West. Lady Alyssa was with them as well, for she had no intention of remaining behind. Her ship, the Maiden's Fancy, had been made ready for the crossing, when the Queen's party reached the docks, however, they found Sir Franklin waiting for them. The rest of them could go, and good riddance, he announced, but his sister would remain on Fair Isle to be wed. The new lord had brought only half a dozen men with him, however, and he had seriously misjudged the love the small folk bore his sister, particularly the sailors, shipwrights, fisherfolk, porters, and other denizens of the dockside districts, many of whom had known her since she was a small girl. As Lady Alyssa confronted her brother, spitting defiance at him and demanding that he get out of her way, a crowd gathered around them, growing angrier by the moment. Oblivious to their mood, his lordship attempted to seize his sister, whereupon the onlookers rushed forward, overwhelming his men before they could draw their blades. Three of them were shoved off the docks into the water, whilst Lord Franklin himself was thrown into a ship's hold full of fresh-caught cod. Alyssa Farman and the rest of the Queen's friends boarded Maiden's Fancy untouched and set sail for Lannisport. Lyman Lannister, Lord of Casterly Rock, had given Rhaenar and her husband Aegon the Uncrowned refuge when Magor the Cruel was demanding their heads. His bastard son, Sir Tyler Hill, had fought with Prince Aegon under the god's eye. His wife, a formidable Lady Jocasta of House Tarbeck, had befriended Rainer during her time at the Rock, and had been the first to discern that she was with child. Just as the Queen had expected, they welcomed her now, and when the rest of her party landed in Lannisport, the Lannisters took them in as well. A lavish feast was held in their honour, an entire stable was given over to Dreamfire, and Queen Rainer, her husband, and her companions of the four-headed beast were assigned a regally appointed suite of apartments deep in the bowels of the rock itself, safe from any harm. There they lingered for more than a moon's turn, enjoying the hospitality of the wealthiest house in all of Westeros. 
As the days passed, however, that very hospitality grew ever more disquieting to Reina Targaryen. It became apparent to her that the bedmaids and servants assigned to them were tattlers and spies, bringing word of their every doing back to Lord and Lady Lannister. One of the castle scepters asked Samantha Stokeworth whether the Queen's marriage to Andrew Farman had ever been consummated, and if so, who had witnessed the bedding? Sir Tyler Hill, Lord Lyman's comely bastard son, was openly scornful of Andrew, even whilst doing all he could to ingratiate himself to Raina herself, regaling her with tales of his exploits at the battle beneath the god's eye, and showing her the scars he had taken there in your Aegon's service. Lord Lyman himself began to express an unseemly interest in the three dragon eggs that the Queen had brought from Fair Isle, wondering how and when they might be expected to hatch. His wife, Lady Jocasta, suggested privately that one or more of the eggs would make a fine gift, if Her Grace should wish to show her gratitude to House Lannister for taking her in. When that ploy proved unsuccessful, Lord Lyman offered to buy the eggs outright for a staggering sum of gold. The Lord of Casterly Rock wanted more than just a high-born guest, Queen Rayner realized then. Beneath the warmth of his veneer, he was too cunning and too ambitious to settle for so little. He wanted an alliance with the Iron Throne, possibly through marriage between her and his bastard, or one of his true-born sons. Some union that would raise the Lannisters up past the High Towers, the Baratheons, and the Valerians to be the second house in the realm. And he wanted dragons. With dragon riders of their own, the Lannisters would be the equals of the Targaryens. They were kings once, she reminded Sam Stokeworth. He smiles, but he was raised on tales of the field of fire. He will not have forgotten. Reyna Targaryen knew her history as well, the history of the freehold of Valyria, writ in blood and fire. We cannot remain here, she confided to her dear companions. There we must leave Queen Reyna for a time, whilst we cast our eyes eastward again toward King's Landing and Dragonstone, where the regent and king remained at odds. Vexing as the issue of the king's marriage was to Queen Alyssa and Lord Rogar, it must not be thought that it was the only matter that concerned them during their regency. Coin, or rather the lack of coin, was the crown's most pressing problem. King Magor's wars had been ruinously expensive, exhausting the royal treasury. To refill his coffers, Magor's master of coin had raised existing taxes and imposed new ones, but these measures brought in less gold than anticipated and only served to deepen the anathema with which the lords of the realm regarded the king. Nor had the situation improved with the ascension of Jaehaerys. The young prince's coronation and his mother's golden wedding had both been splendid affairs that had done much to win him the love of lords and small folk alike, but all that had come at a cost. An even larger expense loomed ahead. Lord Rogar was determined to complete work on the dragon pit before handing the city and the kingdom over to Jaehaerys. But the funds were lacking. Edwell Keltigar, Lord of Claw Isle, had been an ineffectual hand for Magor the Cruel. Given a second chance under the regency, he proved to be an equally ineffectual master of coin. Unwilling to offend his fellow lords, Keltigar instead decided to impose new taxes on the small folk of King's Landing, who were conveniently close at hand. Port fees were tripled. Certain goods were to be taxed, both coming into and out of the city, 
and new levies were asked of innkeeps and builders. None of these measures had the desired effect of filling up the treasury vaults. Instead, building slowed to a halt. The inns emptied, and trade declined notably, as merchants diverted their ships from King's Landing to Driftmark, Duskendale, Maidenpool, and other ports where they might evade taxation. Lannisport and Old Town, the other great cities of the realm, were also included in Lord Keltigar's new taxes, but there the decrees had less effect, largely because Casterly Rock and the High Tower ignored them and made no effort to collect. The new levies did, however, serve to make Lord Keltigar loathed throughout the city. Lord Rogar and Queen Alyssa received their share of opprobrium as well. Another casualty was the Dragon Pit. The Crown no longer had the funds to pay the builders, and all work on the Great Dome ceased. Storms were gathering to both north and south as well. With Lord Rogar occupied in King's Landing, the Dornish men had grown bold, raiding more frequently into the marches, even troubling the stormlands. There were rumours of another vulture king in the Red Mountains, and Lord Rogar's brothers, Boris and Garen, insisted they did not have the men and money required to root him out. Even more dire was the situation in the north. Brandon Stark, Lord of Winterfell, had died in 49 AC, not long after his return from the Golden Wedding. The journey, the Northmen said, had asked too much of him. His son Walton succeeded him, and when a sudden rebellion broke out in 50 AC amongst the men of the Night's Watch at Rhymegate and